Hello and welcome to Voices of Westerly, a new podcast from the United Theatre featuring conversations, many of which are recorded in front of a live audience, with the creative and professional individuals who make Westerly, Rhode Island such a unique and inspired community of leaders, innovators, and artists. I'm your host, Tony Nunes, Artistic Director of the United Theatre, here in the beautiful downtown arts district of Westerly, Rhode Island. The Voices of Westerly series is inspired by Westerly photographer and artist Josh Behan, who created a Faces of Westerly portrait series, which we premiered here a couple of years ago at the United and is now on permanent display and rotation in our halls. Voices of Westerly live discussions will take place monthly in our post-credit scene event space here at the United. All right, our second guest today uh, is a podcaster, a thought leader and a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist, April Dinwiddie. Hi. I'm my way in here. Welcome, April. Hi. So April did this. She was one of our, our first, uh, when we did this back in 2021, I think, uh, when we launched this, this Faces of Westerly gallery show, we, we did one of these events, and we had, I think, six different speakers, and... And so April was one of the speakers we had back then. A lot has changed since then. We have a lot more to talk about. So I'm really happy to have you back. Happy so, to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start with that same question that I'm, I began all the other interviews with, um, which is your, your history, your origin story here in Westerly, and what first brought you to this little corner of Rhode Island? Well, uh, I'd like to say I was adopted into the community because I was, um, as uh, it's baby, I was uh, placed in a foster to adopt home, which is what happens when a child is in foster care and there hasn't been a termination of parental rights. And there is this space and time where a, a child needs to be cared for in a family setting and there could be a reunification with family of origin, there could be a termination of parental rights where then the child would become what is called available for adoption. So I entered the Dinwiddie family as a foster to adopt, and um, as time went on, parental rights were terminated and I was adopted officially, legally, into the Dinwiddie family. In Westerly? In Westerly, Rhode in Island. In Westerly, so you grew up in Westerly, you went to school in Westerly. I did. So you've been here quite a while. Uh, I'll start, I'm gonna start things off light like I always do with the, the simple questions about the things you enjoy about this community and what, what your favorite things to do and places to go and, and people to talk to are here in Westerly. The center of gravity for me in this town is originally Woody Hill Road, which is now South Woody Hill Road, which is right off of Route 1. And it was just far enough away from town that my siblings and myself and my parents and our few neighbors that we had were this little container. And we had a small farm and animals and a lot of land and nature and an in-ground swimming pool. And we lived a very fun, ridiculous sometimes, sometimes, um, too much stacking wood and not enough, you know, TV, you know, all the things that um, the kid just will rail against. But that's the center of my world in Westerly, and it's one of my favorite places to be on the planet. 
you know, when, when things get crazy in the world, in, the, in my life, 9-11 happened, I left New York, I came right back here. Um, when the pandemic happened, I left New York, I came right back here. Um, my heart always comes right back here and it goes right to now South Woody Hill Road, which is where many members of my family are still deeply rooted. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into what you said about, um, you know, being adopted and growing up here locally and how that experience led you to create your podcast, Born in June, Raised in April. So for as long as I can think back and put thought to memory and words to that, I was looking for a way to explain my existence. Why don't I look like them? Where are these other people that are supposed to be my family too? Like, why is this all happening? Uh, so I, I didn't really have the right way in which to explain myself. So, as any kid would do, um, when someone said, where's your real family? I would tell them that Harry Belafonte and Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched were my parents. And they were too busy in Hollywood to look after me. So that is why I'm here. And usually that would shut people up, but sometimes people were like, wait, what? You know, so I was like, oh my gosh, just stop asking me questions. So I told Mr. Belafonte that, by the way, and he leaned into me and he said, where did you grow up? I said, Rhode Island. He said, I spent a lot of time at Jazz Fest, young lady. I was like, <laughs> spit in this tube, come on. Come on, I think we look alike. What a gracious, beautiful, may he rest in peace soul that changed the world in so many ways. Um, but so I had sometimes fantasies that I would tell people. I had, you know, sometimes a joke. Sometimes it really bothered me that I didn't know. And I didn't know how to explain that. So I went to college for communications, which I thought if I can write, if I can speak well, if I can explain things, people will have to listen to me. And maybe I'll find the words and the ways in which to communicate my existence. A lot of things happened in the meantime. I discovered that my name was June Elizabeth at birth, and my parents just liked the name April Elizabeth. So I was born in June, raised in April, and really born in October. So the irony of all those months not being named a month I'm born in, thank goodness, because October would be very awkward, uh, I determined that there was a way in which I experienced the calendar in a different way than my, my siblings, my parents, um, and I created this podcast very much in service of shining light in a practical way that every month of the year, there's some way that my family being diverse and, and multicultural uh, can, can open up a conversation about how you hold a kid in a family system that isn't of that family system genetically. So that, that podcast, Born in June, Raised in April, What Adoption Can Teach the World, is really a monthly themed podcast that unpacks my personal experience with adoption and differences of race, but also helps to put practical application to what the future of transracial adoption and differences of family structure can, can be when they're at their best in serving children. And you bring on guests and other people with similar experiences. I do. My first season was just unpacking my narrative because I went back through an archive of, of things and um, of narrative as I did my search for my mother of origin, which resulted in finding her 
easy to find-ish, but not easy to make a relationship with her. A lot of complexity in her life. She was parenting three children singly. When she had me, she was 33. It was uh, an act of criminal violence, sexual violence that led to my conception. So wasn't able to make a relationship with her, so, but I had a lot of, during the time of finding her and making that bit of a connection that I had with her, I had papers and things, and, and I got my whole hospital record, which I wasn't supposed to get in the state of um, Massachusetts, because Massachusetts at the time was a closed state. All adoption records ought to have been sealed, but I got lucky. So I got my whole report. All that to say that um, I had a little cadence of things that happened throughout every month of the year. So I unpacked my personal story that first year, and then the second year, second season, I started bringing guests on, and each month has a theme, and that theme is unpacked through a guest in, in different ways in which the conversation unfolds. So I want to I stick with the, the conversation on, on having kind of a unique perspective in a community um, and you know shared experiences. And I wanted to ask, as someone who often frames her work around being an underrepresented voice in a community, what has been your experience in this particular community in Westerly, and how has that translated to the important work that you're doing elsewhere with the ARC, the Anti-Racism Coalition here in Westerly, and you know the work that you're doing in diversity and inclusion work and, and all of that. Like, how has your experience here in Westerly shaped that, and what has that experience been like? Broadly, it helps me set expectations for, for people, especially white people because I have a family that loves me deeply. And they're white, I'm not, um, that's just fact. And even when they love you fully, they may not know how to look after you. They may not know how to advocate for you. They may not know how to do your hair. I mean, all of those things are all true, but it doesn't mean they don't love me, right? So for me, it's been that experience next to the things that are also true about Westerly, which is I have a legacy family that I was adopted into. Everybody knew who Tom and Sandy were, right? Because my dad was doing things with the fire district. My mom was doing things with the fire district. We have a church community that is like generations long. I think my, 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 my founding fathers of our family started the church, right? Duns Corners Presbyterian Church. So while I was different, I also had this interesting legacy in Westerly when you have people that are people who know people who know people, you sort of have this inclusion, uh, but you're not quite there. Like you're, it's just, there's a, there's a barrier that just goes up. Um, I also was a very active kid. I, I think about this a lot when I think about why things were okay for me here on a lot of levels. I became a cheerleader and I was decent at it and I was a freshman on the varsity football cheerleading squad. And you know, that's like in this town, it's like, you know. So all those older girls that were seniors and juniors, there was a layer of protection around me. Like no one said it, but in a way like you didn't mess with me because I was also part of that. So if you mess with me, you mess with them. So when I think about that, I'm like, wow, that was a great thing. I didn't, at the time I didn't recognize it, but as I look back, I go, I'm glad I was good at cheerleading. I'm glad I was the only freshman on varsity because it, it kept me somewhat privileged and protected because if I had just been April, little brown girl without some of that, I don't know that I would have been as okay as I was. And there were times where I wasn't okay. 
right? So there are a lot of layers to that. And, And so it sets my expectations for what good white people can actually do to protect people who are different from them. And that's a calibration that is very practical. It keeps me graceful. It keeps me honest. And it keeps me trying to make sure that I don't say something that's going to jeopardize the people that I love. So my work in this is sometimes can be sharp, but I'm always thinking like, is this going to be the moment that my family will be upset or turn away from me? So I, I'm constantly negotiating that. I mean, look, I've said a lot of stuff and done a lot of stuff that they could have easily said, well, you know, April, we don't want you to say that because it doesn't bode well for us, but they haven't done it yet. So odds are they're not gonna leave me ever, thank God. But it's a careful negotiation because when I'm doing this anti-racist work, it's like, well, you must not like white people. Uh, yeah, I actually love them because they're part of my life and family that is inextricably linked to who I am as a person. So what, how has the experience been with um, the work that you're doing, you know, beyond your podcast and everything. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in diversity and inclusion and then a little bit about ARC as well um, for anybody who doesn't know what ARC is all about? So professionally, I w- went into communication arts. I became a marketer in corporate America and did a lot of different projects in writing. And, and then I took time to be in the adoption and foster care space. I ran a research institute for foster care and adoption. So being one of a few women leaders in corporate America and other spaces, I was constantly doing diversity work as a second job, right? I was showing up and doing my marketing work and then anytime anybody needed anything that had anything to do with anybody that was not white, they were like, oh, April, what do you think? And I'm like, well, okay, let me, um, let me see about that. You know, so being, you know, the, the sort of the good sort of corporate executive, I was just doing the most and doing everything I could to, to fulfill whatever I needed to do. Um, and so I was always sort of doing that work. And then when I, when I left corporate to go into the nonprofit space for adoption and foster care, as I sort of wrapped up that part of my work, I was like, I think that all the things that I've done, being a corporate executive, being a person who is, uh, has experienced life from a few different angles, I might as well try to do this diversity work as a thing, and then just people started calling me, right? Like the clients that I was working with and the child welfare space were leaning me deeply towards diversity and inclusion work because in child welfare, foster care adoptions is disproportionately black and brown kids in foster care. They're the first to get removed from families, the last to get adopted. You know, aging on a foster care is a mess, and a lot of that impacts black and brown kids more um, statistically significantly than non-black and brown kids. So it it would just be that my next stage of life would be diversity and inclusion. So that is what I'm doing now predominantly. I have a client, a corporate client in New York where I, I am their diversity and inclusion lead. So I do all of their programming and work with all the different parts of the company. And most of my writing, a lot of my podcasting, a lot of the subject matter that I create is in that space of diversity and inclusion. Track back to 2020, 2019 when the pandemic and um, I'm in New York, I work a lot in school systems, and so a lot of my work just stopped and went virtual. Fine, great place to come back to. And 
at the same time, we have all of the 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 sharpness around, um, you know, just the racial upheaval, if you will, that just wasn't ever on pause. It just got even more profoundly clear. Uh, I came back here in the sort of the the container again of my family, and. I drove through town one day right after George Floyd and um, I saw protesters in the center of the town. And I was like, wait, what? Pulled over, cried. And I think I cried because I was shocked, was sad, was like this mix of things, but I never thought that that would happen in Westerly because we didn't see color, we didn't talk about race, we didn't protect me at times when I needed to. So I was like, there's this, I, I didn't sort of give up on that idea. I just never really gave it too much thought because I'm like, this is just Westerly. All these other places I go for other things like Harlem and New York City and around the world and other places I go get my diversity. This isn't where I'm gonna get that. And I'm not certainly gonna get anybody who cares about social justice here. This is not how I experienced the town. So when that happened, I was like blown away. So then a couple weeks later, I came back. And then I came back and came back and came back. And came back. I am not a um, sort of yell and scream, shout out from the rooftops person. I don't see anything wrong with that. Like that's just not who I am. I can do it, I have done it. But after I do that and after I'm exhausted from yelling, I'm like, well wait, like wait, what else can we do? And knowing this town, I knew that if that continued, we'd have no runway to get to anybody that would actually listen to us and, and take what we said seriously. So after a while, there were a few folks that emerged as people that sort of felt the same way, um, that you know this is important and, and, and protesting and signs and, and, and being vocal is clearly a gateway, but then there's also this other gateway of, of facts, knowledge, and information, education, embracing each other as a community, building relationships. So that's kind of how ARC organically happened and slowly but surely became a thing. We didn't have a name at the beginning, we didn't have a clue. And then because we have such amazing people who are researchers, who are educators, who are um, you know business people, musicians, like there's all parts of kind of this professional relationship and then all of us are tethered together by our, our shared commitment to social justice and anti-racism. So, you said you, you saw this protest, it, you know, you were really emotional and happy to see that in your town. Uh, obviously, like any other town, there, there's a lot of other things happening on the other end of that spectrum, uh, which are, are difficult things and difficult conversations and controversial things. Um, so this is kind of a loaded question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you know, with your diversity and equity work and all of that that you're doing in the corporate world with, with people, what would you bring from that world if you were to sit down here in Westerly with some of the people you know, running this town or working in this town? And, and what would you say to them to kind of get things moving in a, a direction that might be more towards diversity and inclusion and uh, less, you know, some of the harder conversations that, that seem to pop up every now and again in, in this community, in every community, really. I'm not, you know, yeah. saying Westerly's Westerly's any different. Nope. It's not. Um, but 
but what would you do? What would you say and what would you bring to that conversation? And I know you are kind of having some of those conversations mm -hmm. as well, if you don't mind talking about them. So while we were all, I think, as a, a community of people who cared about what was happening with, with racism and um, injustice, while we were digging in to that comforting each other, like just being together, we were watching our town candidates at certain functions around their wanting to be part of the leadership of this town and hearing over and over again, there's no racism westerly. This doesn't happen here. And it was just so, quite frankly, ridiculous that oh, all of a sudden this little pocket of the world, which is beautiful and amazing, but there's no way that we are the only community on the face of the earth that just doesn't have any racism. Solved racism. Yeah, yeah. and if we have, yeah. just like our, you know, our point of pride for having one of the longest running rivalries with Stonington at the football game, let's shout it from the rooftops. And let's be really a model for other communities around the world. So if we've mastered that, let's show the world. And the truth is we know we haven't. What is hard, I think, and, and this is the real tough stuff about sort of looking in the mirror, is that the data will tell you what's actually happening. And what I want to happen at whatever stage a leader is, to one, have them recognize that Westerly is not unique we are very much on track, I think, with a lot of small towns like ours in New England that are wrestling with the same sort of issues. Uh, I would like them to look at their data and look at it really, really intricately because we have an influx of diversity that comes into our town in the summer months. And that creates a lot of um, it creates a lot of commerce. And I would also say it probably creates commerce in ways that we haven't thought about, which is traffic stops, tickets, and different ways that fees are paid to this town. And if you looked at the data, I'm almost positive that you would see a disproportionately amount of persons of color contributing to that economy. Uh, so there's a, a way to do this that is not blaming or shaming, not accusatory, but really just saying, hey, let's look at where we are. That's why the equity art at the school is so important to say, okay, these are the pockets of community that aren't being served, and here's a pathway to actually serve them well. So in good information, good knowledge and information will help us become at least at the starting place of what could be. And once we know better you do better, and I think at this point, at the very least, some basic diversity and inclusion and anti-racism professional development. That should, all towns should have that as a requirement for their leaders and for uh, anyone who is contributing to a community, has to have just some basic diversity and inclusion training as a starting place. And with that, then there comes other programming and things that you can do. So first and foremost, I just want our leaders to admit that racism exists everywhere and bias exists in our humanity. And once we know that, then, then what do we do about it? Yeah, that's a great answer. 
Um, I'm going to end this conversation with the same question that I'm always asking to end these conversations. Um, you know, one kind of setting the path forward and thinking about the future. Uh, again, like any community, Westerly is an ever-evolving community of new businesses, creatives, and voices. What would you like to see happen in this community over the next few years, and how do you envision yourself being a part of that? Similar to what I was just talking about, it's it's a both and in a way, right? It's 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 doing some of the harder things around changing operating systems, personal, structural ways in which we just walk around and know that you can do X, Y, and Z, and nothing's going to happen to you when other folks can't. I mean, it's just a personal operating system that has to be reset, and then the then the systems actually need to be be better equipped to, to manage diversity and to really be welcoming of all people. I think right on the other side of that is amazing opportunities that places like the United afford us, which is teaching and experiencing through content and through conversation and through community building that we're building all of these things. So to me, it feels like I want all of those things to work together. The library, the United, you know, ARC, the school, the town council, to work together to make Westerly even more beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a pretty great place. And yet, there's just so much more to make it more inclusive, more welcoming of diversity and more celebrating of diversity that there when that happens it's to the it's to the moon right because we already have so many amazing foundational elements that make this town so special so those the combination of things could be amazing i want westerly to be elevated to what it knows it can be at its roots um, but has to face some real hard history in order to do that that's perfect. Great answer. I look forward to that future. You're a part of it. <laughs> we are. We're all a part of it. So thank you, April, for joining us. April Dinwiddie. Thank Thanks again to both Bridget and April, and thank you for joining us. We'll be back next month with more conversations from the voices of Westerly. Until then, give a listen to our other podcasts here on the United Theatre Podcast Network, including The Load-In with Lee Metzger and my other podcast, Box Office Culture. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in to the United Theatre Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And if you could take a moment to leave a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. Your feedback helps us create content that you love. So hit that subscribe button and leave us a review, and we'll see you on the next episode.